0: The Atlas Society asks, my name is Vicki Odino, and I'm with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. This is actually the one-year anniversary of these weekly webinars, and normally I'm producing these behind the scenes, but today I have the opportunity in front of the camera to host an incredible panel discussion. Starting today, we're gonna be rotating in the first of a series of discussions where we will talk about current events with a panel consisting of our very own Atlas Society scholars. Founder David Kelly, philosopher Stephen Hicks, and economist Richard Salzman. We're also going to save time at the end to take some audience questions. So throughout the discussion, please feel free to type your questions into the Zoom Q&A Or if you're watching us live on Facebook or YouTube, you can type those comments just right in the comment screen. Today, we're going to cover three areas. The one-year anniversary of the lockdowns, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, and the controversies surrounding the canceling of several Dr. Seuss books. So thanks for joining us, and let's get started with our first topic, the lockdowns. It was just a little over a year ago the United States and much of the globe was put on lockdown. COVID had arrived and we needed two weeks, we were told, to flatten the curve and to keep hospitals from overflowing. And ever since then, we have repeatedly been ordered to lock down in order to defeat this virus. Some people saw this as a power grab from day one, but the great majority of the population blindly complied, locking themselves inside, avoiding any and all human contact and reporting on those who didn't strictly comply. Today, a year later, even with the vaccine, we are told to continue to wear masks, to social distance and to gather only in small groups. We've learned a lot over this past year about the virus, about our government and about us as a people. So to the panel, what are your thoughts about where we are today with the government restrictions and guidelines and where do you see this all headed in the future? And I also wanna ask, What can we do in the future when the government attempts a similar or maybe even a greater control over our lives and our businesses, considering how many are fearful and compliant and who value safety over freedom? So, Stephen, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, I I like very much uh, the the idea of this uh, panel discussion. Uh, Normally, uh, we at the Atlas Society, we're taking the long view and uh, thinking about abstract philosophical principles and and, then the the big picture. But we are in the midst of a a, a current event and an ongoing current event that not only is affecting us on a day to day basis, but does lead us to think about where we want to be the next time something like this happens. And that's kind of the, the way I've been thinking about this issue for the last several months or so. So we're dealing right now with uh, COVID-19 and uh, its variants and so on. But sometimes I think of the question this way, you know, what, what will we do? What will we have learned when COVID-20 strikes, right? Or COVID-30 strikes, because it's going to happen. And uh, all of us need to learn from experience uh, as individuals and as societies so. My question then is uh, one year out, what have we learned based on the past year's experience? I'm imagining all of us are more up to speed on statistics uh, than we were a year ago. I know I, I certainly am. Uh, and I think also more up to speed on, on, uh, on psychology uh, uh, as we uh, have uh, had right before our very eyes, a wide range of psychological reactions to, uh, to the event. But uh, uh, thinking about the politics a lot, as uh, Vicky's question points us towards. So I know my natural reaction when we started to, uh, to, to have this uh, uh, problem about a year ago was to say, well, I just need to, uh, to, to learn a lot about this. So I started reading a whole bunch of stuff. And it seemed like most people in my social circle were starting to read a whole bunch of stuff and they were starting to buy uh, you know, more hygiene equipment and practice various sorts of social distance and change plans and so on. And so the assumption there, uh, at least for me, the one that seemed natural was that most people are going to do this sort of thing. And most people are smart, and they know their own circumstance. So we can expect there's going to be a lot of experimenting about how best to deal with this. And we'll all learn in a more benevolent fashion. Now, I'm overstating my, my optimistic and benevolent response there. But if something like that was my, my initial response. So it was shocking to me to realize how quickly the lockdowning occurred and how easily it was accepted uh, across you know, multiple dozens and dozens of jurisdictions. And it wasn't just the places where you would expect uh, you know, more authoritarian responses. It's the places that have long traditions of broadly liberal response and, and, and wide respect for innovation and ingenuity and respecting people's privacies and freedoms and so on. So, The big question on my mind is, uh, uh, what can we learn about the response of the lockdowners, particularly the lockdowners who have political power? And I know that uh, in our uh, part of the political spectrum, we we tend to focus on the, uh, the authoritarians. And I know there are a large number of authoritarians in political power who they like having power, Here's a wonderful opportunity for me to just exert my my power, and if I can lock people down and tell people what to do, that's what I like like doing. And I don't deny that there are such people out there in the United States and Canada and so on, but I'm not sure that we have good data uh, about how many of our political leaders are, in fact, of that psychological mindset. And so I think one of the things, the the avenues of research that we should be focusing on is getting a better handle on what was going on inside the minds of the political leaders who ended up locking down. Why were they doing so? And the power lusting authoritarian, I think is is only one type. My sense is, and this is just a hypothesis, is that a larger group were actually politicians who weren't necessarily authoritarian by their political instincts, but they were politicians and they had absolutely no idea what to do uh, in response to this. But they were feeling enormous pressure to do something. And politicians don't have very many tools in their toolkit one of the tools in their toolkit is to lock down stuff. So it wasn't necessarily out of authoritarian instinct, but just this pressure, I need to do something and I really don't know what to do. So I'm going to try this. And a certain amount of following the leader that politicians will feel pressure to do what other politicians are doing. And so it's a chain reaction thing. And that seems to be a different political, psychological mindset than the authoritarian response. So a question that I have for myself is how many people are in that category of the political lockdowners. And then the third category, and my my hypothesis uh, uh, right now is that this might be the largest category of the politicians, and those are people who are not authoritarian, but who are paternalist uh, politicians, and they are operating from what they think of as mostly benevolent motives. So think of this as the paternalist, benevolent politician type and who will want to say here we do have an emergency this is an extraordinarily complicated issue nobody knows what's going on and i do need to do what's best for the population but when i as the politician look at the vast majority of people out there who are, uh, are in my uh, uh, in my jurisdiction um most of those people don't know very much about science Many of those people recognize that these issues are too complicated, and they, they need leadership on these issues, and they are very emotional. They're prone to doing all sorts of weird things when they get scared, and this really is a scary thing, and there's also a significant number of people who are my, my, my constituents who are, are irresponsible in their their personal hygiene and other lifestyle habits and so forth. So I think of myself as a paternalistic leader, but a benevolent paternalistic leader. And I really think most people aren't in a position to act responsibly in this case for cognitive reasons, for emotional reasons, and just for reasons of their personal habit. So they need leadership. They need to be controlled and told what to do for their own good. So my hypothesis then again is how many of the politicians are in that category so that when we are thinking, when COVID-20 or COVID-25 comes along, we're going to have another crop of politicians, but if we're going to have an effective you know, liberal, libertarian, objectivist response to them, it has to be targeted against the right kind of politicians. So we have to understand them, them well. Uh, I've One other thought here that the, the lockdowns, I think were not only a supply side problem, you know, that the politicians in effect supplying an authoritarian response, that uh, this also was a demand side problem. And they, the, uh, uh, you know, so paternalism or authoritarianism is both something that many politicians are willing to deliver, but it is also something that a significant number of people ask for and want. So I think as part of our research, I think we need better data on how many people in the populace, you know, we like to think of them as American. Uh, you know, or, or Western liberals, self-reliant and so forth. But a lot of people really are we sheeple. And uh, that might be a cheap shot overstatement, but when there are complicated, scary things like new viruses come along, what percentage of the population actually wants to be taken care of in some sense in that circumstance? And then that's going to then uh, propose a set of challenges for us Five years out, ten years from now, how uh, how do we need to uh, be educating people or encouraging self responsibility so that we have fewer we the sheeple in the next generation? So, I'll with those initial responses take a pause.
0: Richard, what do you what are your comments on that?
2: Well, I want I just say briefly one I endorse really. Professor Hicks' really insightful view about paternalism having a supply and a demand side—that was actually one of the things I was going to talk about. I totally endorse that. That—that that is an important part of this story: political paternalism itself, uh, which is basically not—that's not going to be for a free society when people don't feel autonomous or capable of making their own decisions. And the minute you think of paternalism, you think of infantilism. If the leaders are parents, the citizens are children. That is not a good situation. So I thought I would focus instead quickly just on two things I've noticed about this. One is epistemology and what I call safetyism. And the other one is federalism, All right? So the first one's bad news. The second one I think is actually good news. So the first thing I'm noticing is epistemologically, I like the idea that people said during the year, follow the science. I'm for science. We're for science. Science is based on facts, reality, logic, studies, now, I don't think they actually follow the science in epidemiology. But set that aside for a moment. My bigger beef is that they forgot the science of economics. They forgot the science of they, they forgot political science. They forgot the science of psychology. All the things that um, these public health officials said: "To hell with all that. To hell with the economy. To hell with political liberties, civil liberties. To hell with mental health. We're going to minimize the spread of this COVID thing." And that is just, to me, myopic. Which is a problem in epistemology, but that's a huge issue. There's something called the precautionary principle, Dr. Kelly and I have talked about offline. I think that really has to be investigated. But one last point, this is a positive point. Thank goodness the US is a federalist system, meaning the states can try their own things. And so one thing I think might come out of this is after a year, who did it right and who did it wrong? Did Florida do it right? I think so. Did California, New York, Illinois, and others do it badly? Yes. I hope that comes out. I hope that's studied. And like Professor Hicks, I hope this is not repeated every year, especially when all this data and all this evidence is in. So I'll just stop there.
0: Thanks, Richard. David?
2: Uh, muted. <laughs> Unmuted.
0: There you go.
3: I would. I would second richard's point about federalism it's been an interesting study um, and a topic of some discussion uh for all the calls of let's have one national plan one national plan for the rollout one national plan for lockouts mask mandates etc and thank god yes we have a federal system so the the laboratory of democracy which is you know the uh, I, I think a very true characterization of, of the federal system can, can get to work. So I'll, I'll look for that. And I just want to say that it, uh, watching the lockdown and the responses, for me, as a someone who studies uh, the thinking processes and logic, uh, it has been a textbook example of uh, logical fallacies and, and cognitive biases all over the place. Um, unfortunately one one of the worst i think is called the availability um uh bias which is that we tend to um exaggerate the probability uh of an event based on how recently how available to our minds um a certain instance of it is uh without looking at statistics now we've all you know probably all all of us and many of the people listening have have um Try to follow the statistics and be rational about it. But there are, um, you know, many people are just, you know, they get their availability sense, their sense of what's going on in the world from the media. And the media has been playing this up in a certain way that um, makes it uh, just completely new, scary, and awful. Um, And it is scary and it is new. And and in some ways it has been awful, but it has been um, you know there's the, the availability uh, bias leads people to drop the context. So I'll leave it there. There are many other fallacies I could talk about, now, but mm-hmm. um, thanks, Stephen and and Richard. Uh,
0: Great. Well, before we begin the second topic, I just want to remind everybody who's listening, whether on Zoom or live on YouTube or Facebook, to go ahead and post any questions you might have about this particular topic um, while you're thinking about it, and we'll get to those at the at the end of this. But in the meantime, we'll get to the next topic, which is the COVID relief package. This past week, Congress passed and the president signed into law a $1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief bill that had little to do with COVID-19. It was passed over Republican opposition and contains bailouts for pension plans and for blue states like New York, as well as funding for things such as Amtrak and the arts. And this happened at a time when the nation is already $28 trillion in debt, when COVID death rates are falling across the country and when economic prospects are improving. So I want to ask the panel, what are some of the concerns you have with this kind of deficit spending? And Richard, why don't we start with why don't we start with you?
2: Okay, let me just say first of all, it's a misnomer to call these stimulus packages, but that's very common as you know. They're literally the opposite of that. They're depressive. Uh, but this is standard fare in Washington. They will name bills uh, with they'll use words that are the opposite of what the bills, intend or, well, I should say do. Now, the 1.9 trillion, understand this is on top of the three points trillion a year ago. So We're up to multi-trillions. They've tried this before. This is not the first one. Um, This is government spending massive amounts of money to pay people not to work. They already told people not to work. They told people to go home and go in their basements and hide and don't talk to anybody in distance. So That alone is an outrageous policy in violation of civil liberties and not even following the science. Now you follow this with a very unscientific economic theory from Keynes saying that if the government deficit spends, if it spends a dollar, that stimulates the economy in ways that your spending of the dollar would not. That's just nonsense. That's always been nonsense. Most of the economic profession actually recognized that it was nonsense starting in the 70s when Keynes was out of fashion. But Keynes, you know, came back strongly, Keynesian economics in 2008 during the financial crisis. So this whole, this really wasn't killed, this whole idea. It was revived and and it's easy for politicians to love this theory because they can spend without limit. So let's be clear, if if stimulus is supposed to be to increase the output of the economy, I mean, that's what they claim to be doing, right? Not stimulating destruction, they're supposed to be stimulating production, it's supposed to be stimulating economic activity, it's supposed to be putting people back to work, that kind of thing, right? That's the idea. Uh, but notice it's just putting money in people's pockets, as they say, and they go and spend on things that already exist. So it's not going to stimulate production to give people money to go consume things. Point one. Point two, you cannot multiply wealth by dividing it. That's just simple math. This is a redistribution of wealth. And when you redistribute wealth, you're divvying up the wealth. So simple math. You cannot multiply wealth by dividing it. And that's what the redistribution of wealth is. So that's just that's the basic point. By the way, I have a much lengthier analysis of this at my website. So I don't want to, I don't want to seem too glib about this and too superficial. There's an extensive analysis of this uh, on my website, Richard So just go there. Uh, Now, here's what else I see in this. Um, Temporary relief, we've had this now for a year, temporary relief. I think, and they're on record, some of them, including Republicans, I think what they're actually hoping to do is pave the way toward universal basic income. People have wanted, uh, the left has wanted this in this country for a long time. They've wanted a guaranteed government income for everybody which to me is unjust uh, to give people money for no reason other than their existing. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. They don't even have to work for it. To me is just the essence of injustice. But just so you know, that's what they're working toward. That's what some of them have actually advocated to turn this temporary relief package into a permanent uh, income coming from the government. So, so look for that. I think that's very terrible. I think it's, it's gonna contribute to long-term economic stagnation. Um, last thing I'll say is something on the debt. Now, when they do this, they, when they do this, when they do these, quote, stimulus packages, they do not tax people notice. They don't tax you and spend it. I think it would be too obvious to them that they're taking from the left pocket and putting in the right pocket, right? So that, that would be too crude and obvious even to the average American citizen. So, so what they do is borrow the money or print the money. Federal Reserve prints it, the treasury borrows it. So there is an issue of whether we are putting future burdens on future generations, right? Because when you borrow, it's the future generations that will have to pay that. So it is a way of burdening non-voters. Future gens, future generations, in effect, are treated as fiscal commons. They're, treated, they're abused in a way. But of course, they can't say anything about it because they don't vote. So uh, I just want to leave it at that. I mean, there's much more to say about that. But there is, a, there is a certain dishonesty associated with putting this off to future generations by borrowing it. On the other hand, as objectivists and liberty lovers and libertarians, we should be aware of the fact that when the government spending is huge, that's the real problem. The secondary issue is how you pay for it. And I have to confess that if you had a choice between tax finance and debt finance, it's undeniable that the debt finance is actually somewhat voluntary. You do not have to buy the government bonds. You do not have to buy the government debt. They're relying on people lending to the government. But I think if I were pushed to say, okay, they're going to spend this massive amount. Now, would you massively tax people, Salzman, or would you borrow it? I would actually say borrow it, but I'm really against the spending to begin with. So I'll stop there
0: and richard that was um for your website that's richardsalzman.com okay great and we'll make sure to put that in the in the comments as well
2: that's where the essay
0: okay great we'll we'll direct everybody to go there to get you know more detail on that david did you have anything you wanted to add
3: i just have really a question for richard um an economic question um if the government borrows money um, there is a sense in which it, the financing becomes voluntary because no you're not forcing anyone to buy the bills. Yeah. but um, on the other hand, the bills have to be paid. Yes somehow. They're, they're actual debt. Yeah. Um, so uh, you can keep borrowing to pay off previous debts and so on, but I'm and kick the can down the road, but isn't it ultimately going to come down to you know, someone else down the road paying?
2: Yes, taxes. Yes. In fact, yeah, exactly. one, one way you can look at it is to say that today as taxpayers, we are paying for the deficit finance of prior decades. Yeah. So prior decades when they said, uh, oh, we have to borrow to bail out the banks and uh, uh, don't worry about it. Future gens, will, will, we, we're paying for it now. So the tax burden does go up with a lack. There's no doubt about that. Another way of thinking of debt is debt is deferred taxes. Debt is taxes; it's just deferred. But we know why politicians defer things like (laughs) the goodies out, and they don't want at the same time say there's any cost. So that's a good question. No, ultimately, it has to be paid by taxpayers. That's that's true.
3: Okay, thanks.
1: uh, Jump in with uh, another kind of ethics point on this. Uh, So, know when I was reading up on this, the word that popped into my mind was uh, brazen. As it's not only that's a standard dishonesty, but a brazen dishonesty in this case. Obviously, we're dealing with an emergency and you don't want to let emergencies go to waste, but this <laughs> is uh, billed as a COVID relief bill. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, so once again, this is partly uh, Richard's point, it's you know, the, the the label that is used here, but it's an extraordinarily dishonest bill. Once you get into the provisions of the bill and you read various estimates that only eight percent or only ten percent or only eleven percent uh, of the monies are actually going on to anything related to covid relief right uh, now it's normal of course for there to be bundled stuff going into bills and there's a certain amount of dishonesty at play in in washington when that happens but this is an extraordinarily high level of bundling And I know uh, that when I do my work in business ethics and we talk about advertising ethics, you know, if you start advertising something as orange juice, but it turns out that it has something like only 8% orange juice, you go (laughs) to jail and you get shut down when you do that for the blatant dishonesty. And here Mm -hmm. what we have is the politicians engaging in blatant dishonesty and they're not worried about it, right? In some sense, they know that they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as a, 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 a disturbing point about our collective political psychology right now.
0: Thank you. And again, let me remind everybody if you have any questions on the stimulus package, no, on the COVID relief bill, no. Um, (laughs) What do we call it? On the uh, tax on future generations, um, be sure to type those in and uh, we'll get to those when we're we're finished with our final topic, which is Dr. Seuss. Mm In the latest purging of material deemed offensive, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the company that oversees the estate of Dr. Seuss, announced it would cease licensing and publication of six Dr. Seuss books because they, quote, portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong, end quote. This was quickly followed by an announcement from eBay that it would also be removing these books from its sites. Of course, a private company may choose to discontinue any of their products, but I'm wondering whether we should be concerned about the bigger picture here of an often small but vocal group of people deciding what or even who is offensive and demanding it be removed or destroyed. Is there ever an argument for something offensive or something that might be hurtful and wrong to remain available, whether it's a book, a statue, a film, or even a person. And finally, Dr. Seuss died three decades ago. So why why now? David, what, what are your thoughts on this?
3: Uh, <clears throat> yeah, let me just uh, tell you a little bit about the uh, the Seuss cancellation, so to speak. Um, there were six books brought by um, Dr. removed from publication by Dr. Seuss Enterprises and by eBay, as, as Vicky said. Um, you give me an example of what the problem was. Uh, one of the books was, um, uh, and to think I, that I saw it on Mowbray Street. Okay, there's a little rhyme in it that goes like this. A Chinese man who eats with sticks, a big magician doing tricks. Typical Dr. Seuss sing-song rhyming. Uh, but along with the, um, that refrain, there's a, an illustration of an Asian man with yellow skin, a conical hat, a pigtail, um, eating rice with, this, with chopsticks. Uh, this was the offensive. This is why this book was removed. Um, he, he, you know, the incident was quickly attacked as cancel culture by people who don't share that view, uh, but just as quickly defended by, the, you know, the woke side of the equation. You know, why Seuss? Why now? As Vicky was asking, um, honestly, I don't know why certain things rise to the top of the um, news um, cycle. Um, uh, but I would say maybe, here's a hypothesis, maybe because Dr. Seuss is an icon, you know, a kid's icon. And, be, and maybe precisely because these images seem like pretty offensive, pretty petty offenses at best. You know, there are lots of entrepreneurial um, people out there in a the wokedom who are always looking to expand the envelope, push the margins out. Um, and, you know, we're living in a, in a world in which everyone ultimately will get their 15 minutes of shame. But I want to go on and talk about the underlying um, the underlying uh, 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 phenomenon here of cancel culture. Uh, what is it? It's a loosely defined um, term, but it basically means trying to silence people who voice ideas or um, opinions that are not pol- politically correct, and not only to silence them, but to remove them from public discussion. Uh, for, I, there are many many examples that's happening all over. There are academics who are accused of saying offensive things in, in their courses that offend students. There are complaints, there's disciplinary procedures. There are shaming attacks on social media. Uh, there's the tearing down of historical statues, uh, removing books from curricula or from publication, as, as in this case. These campaigns have been going on for decades in academia and they're getting worse there. But they've also spread to secondary education, to business, um, and many other realms of of culture. I want to note that it's worth observing that the pattern of these um, events is, um, is what Ayn Rand called the argument from intimidation. The argument, the logical structure of the argument from intimidation is you said something, proposition P is evil vicious racist whatever so you are evil vicious racist and should not be allowed to talk anymore um that's kind of the inverse of the logical fallacy of ad hominem which is you're a bad person therefore what you say is wrong um but the, the two tend to go hand in hand you know i i could go on on the logic that's my field but um I want to get to the more to the substance. It's, it's very easy to parody um, and uh, parody cancer culture, and I think the Dr. Seuss example to me is was just, you know, only someone deep into it could could believe that uh, that this was a problem. But anyway, um, and it's easy to point out a lot of inconsistencies. One of my favorites was pointed out by um, someone on Real Clear Policy. I think you know, Woodrow Wilson School just renamed, uh, sorry, the Princeton just renamed the Woodrow Wilson School for International Affairs, something else, because Woodrow Wilson was a uh, racist. He was also the guy who lobbied for and implemented the income tax, but I don't think I've heard anyone on the left suggesting that we get rid of the income tax. Um, but in any case, that is itself a, a kind of bad hominem, so I'm, I won't pursue it further. I wanna to get to the issues. Um, people who defend cancel culture uh, tend to use one of two arguments, and I think it's worth uh, uh, looking a little into these. <clears throat> um, the first argument is, um, uh, you know, as Vicky pointed out, that things that are labeled as cancellation often are, do not involve government coercion or censorship, literally. They involve uh, private entities like the Dr. Seuss Enterprises um, or the social media platforms, which are privately owned and so forth. Um, as, as kind of an unexpected argument from the left, who, who are not known as, as great advocates of private property and freedom of contract. But um, in any case, the, the goal, quite apart from or independently of uh, uh, government action censorship, I think is to, to create, and very clearly, is to create a kind of stigma surrounding certain ideas. Uh, John Stuart Mill, in his wonderful book on liberty, um, wrote about this in talking about the freedom of opinion and speech. When, you know, he pointed out, and this is the middle of the 19th century, he's pointing out, well, you know, we don't burn religious heretics at the stake anymore. Okay, they can, they're safe from that. But there is a stigma that leads people, um, as he put it, the the most inquiring, intellects find it in their advisable to keep their opinions to themselves rather than risking public opprobrium. Now, as an objectivist who believes strongly in independence, you know, when I first read that years and years ago, I thought, well, come on, stand up for yourself. And I still believe that. But there is a point when, um, y- you know, the, the overwhelming tide of a stigma um, and social opprobrium uh, does have an impact on people and it's very clear that this is happening. Many surveys um, indicate that the fear of speaking up pervades academia, uh, academia, especially on the part of students and interestingly, what I've seen is that students are more afraid of blowback from other students than they are from their teachers even. Um, it has spread to um, secondary, primary and secondary schools um, very wise uh, a journalist who was herself kind of a refugee from the New York Times, uh, part, in effect canceled, um, had an interesting article on the fear that parents at in wealthy districts, um, the fear that they have about the woke curriculum that is being introduced to their students at top prep schools, and they're gathering secretly and anonymously because they don't want to rock the boat of their kids. I mean, this is shocking. These are people who are highly successful, have the money to pay $50,000 a year for the kids in, in uh, prep school. So there is this stigma and that is what, I. I it's not equivalent to coercion, um, but it is a cultural factor that has accelerated and it is an example of what Rand called the argument from intimidation. So anyway, the second argument, the first argument is about it's all private, so you can't complain. The second argument is that, um, well, cancel culture is really just about holding people accountable for what they say and what they've done. There was um, a recent example of um, the actress uh, Gina Carano, who, who was fired from the Disney, um, uh, the Mandalorian show, because of tweets she's, she she uh, thinks she tweeted that were reflected a conservative um, social outlook and. Um, so there was a, there was an uproar with this, um, and but people on the left, I have one particular example, um, said, you know, in, and this is worth. I'm going to read this aloud because it's worth thinking. What the, what the, it, this is? John uh, Pavlovitz. It wasn't the toxic content of her the tweets alone that generated the building backlash, resulting in her termination, but the defiance she displayed in response to honest expressions of pain from thousands of vulnerable fans injured by her. Hmm. In a certain mood, I would say, oh, I'm crying a giant tear for these fans. Why are they even listening? But anyway, but then he goes on to say, you guys on the right who defend free speech, you now coming to experience that free speech comes with a heavy cost, the response of others to that speech cancel culture is just adult accountability. And, um, you know, so let's look at that. The critics of cancel culture often uh, it with the principle of freedom of speech, freedom of conviction, and um, the open marketplace of ideas. And that's all all well and good. I I believe in it totally. But there is, accountability is a valid concept. People are responsible for what they say and for the foreseeable consequences. The the important point here is that accountability means evaluation by some standard or other. In this case, the standards are uh, egalitarian. They're based on, first of all, group identity. Secondly, the idea that words are coercive. They actually hurt people. People have no, uh, no defense against them. And thirdly, the Marxist um, framework of oppressor and oppressed. Now, all of those are false, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, Accountability by valid standards, by sound, true standards is is important. Freedom of speech and toleration are definitely values in a rational culture, but ideas do matter. The content of ideas matters. The ideas are true or false. They have consequences and people are responsible for what they say and for the implications of what they say. So, my, my approach to this whole issue is, is uh, to turn it back on the counselors and say <clears throat> to hold its adherents to account, ask them to defend the premises they're based on, which I've just outlined, their collectivist assumptions. Ask them to defend their tactic of using fear rather than argument as a tool of persuasion and impact. And finally, um, and I think we are best suited as objectivists to do this, providing victims and targets with ways to respond with the value of Mm -hmm. integrity and independence um, no matter what it costs. Because in the end, Mm -hmm. if you stand up, I think, I think standing up to bullies is um, more, more often effective than not, so I'll leave it there.
0: Thanks, David. Stephen, I'm wondering if you have anything to add to that.
3: Yeah, I, uh,
1: I, I do. I, I like David's distinction uh, between uh, political censorship and cancel culture. And I do think that this really is a cultural phenomenon and it's a kind of cultural warfare that is, uh, that's going on. And the, the right contrast is between what we're now calling cancel culture and broadly liberal culture. So uh, I also wanted to second David's mentioning of uh, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty from, from 1859 as, as brilliant on these points. But uh, cancel culture is used widely and uh, amorphously, but uh, in my thinking, it comes down to a content point and a method point. What the cancel cultures are trying to do is limit severely the content or the range of legitimate content that can be spoken of publicly. So they're trying to get certain positions just taken off the table. We can't talk about those issues, and we certainly can't take certain positions on those issues. And and, uh, 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 so the idea is is the, the Overton window, as it sometimes uh, described the, the range of legitimate public discourse is being closed or being narrowed and we know ultimately you know, as David was pointing out there's a range of positions and a range of uh, of topics that one can talk uh, that that one can talk about and the positions that one can announce that's the the ultimate goal now that's the the content side, but there also is the method side. Uh, that rather than this being matters of open discussion, toleration, argumentation, and so forth, it is explicitly the use of intimidation, the uh, the generating of fear in people, of various kinds of social consequences, in order to get people to stifle themselves and take themselves out of the debate, or certainly not to not to uh, to do their expression. So, I think culture a a cancel culture is contrasted to liberal culture in two dimensions. And we have to fight for that liberal culture. What that typically means is, if you have a liberal culture, the, the assumption is that people are going to think for themselves and since life is complicated, the world is complicated, there's going to be lots and lots of opinions out there that people are going to, uh, going to adopt. And that's kind of your social baseline. You go into it expecting a great diversity of opinions and viewpoints being out there. That's the first thing that the cancel culture is, is, uh, is attacking. Uh, you, you're not allowed to have a wide range of opinions. And the second thing is, as part of liberal culture is, yeah, that when we're interacting with each other on intellectual matters or cultural matters, we have to do so ultimately, voluntarily, and peacefully. And that then is to say, if I don't like what you're saying, I've got a range of tools at my disposal from walking away from you and not engaging with you, or just putting up with you and tolerating you. Or if I am going to engage with you when we disagree, I'm going to uh, argue with you uh, using all of the proper standards of argument and 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 what we do find when cancel culture is that all of the legitimate issues of tolerance, they are becoming intolerant. That's off the board. We're just not going to tolerate. And we're not only uh, not going to tolerate, we're not going to argue with you. We're legitimately going to use intimidation, ad hominem, appeals to authority, Uh, appeals to majority and so forth. All of the things that we know are illegitimate tactics and we're going to just try to intimidate people in soft, coercive ways. So on both content and method, uh, it's liberal culture versus cancel culture. And uh, the strategists of this movement know exactly what they are doing.
0: Well, Richard, we've got a couple of minutes. If you wanna squeeze in something really fast, go right ahead.
2: I realize we only have two minutes, Vicky. So I, I just wanted to tie it back to COVID. Believe it or not, I think mm. of it this way. I think of the two main ways, at least psychologically, to control people, uh, to lord it over them, is fear and guilt. Mm. Uh, guilt, you could say, was like shame. I did, by the way, David, fifteen minutes of shame. That's just hilarious because it reminds me. <laughs> <you>. That's <laughs> a good line. Minutes <laughs> of fame, which was I forget who said that. Um. So COVID, COVID generates fear, right? But also shaming. Are you wearing your mask? Are you social distancing? And um, cancel culture is definitely full of shaming, guilt. So I think it is part of a piece. I just wanted to integrate it back into COVID. I think these are related. I think there's a real movement in this otherwise seemingly liberal culture toward massive illiberalism. And so fear and guilt, if you see it arising, I think is uh, that's the motive, not to get too much into the motive. How funny that three or four years ago, people were worried about schoolyard bullying of kids, remember? Sure. Physical bullying. Yes, I'm glad that was a movement. But now we have intellectual bullying. Now we have psychological bullying. Now we have adults bullying each other online and things like that. So I think it's an assault on free speech. I think it's an attempt to Uh, squelch free thought. I I actually endorse Dr. Kelly's view that, hey, let's remember, some people do really say nasty, vile things. Call them out on it. And that's okay. But some of these things are getting so petty that you wonder whether really what they're trying to do is get rid of vile premises and comments. The last thing I'll say on a positive note, if you really think you're being unfairly um, canceled, I have seen a very positive reaction you know, a reaction to a boycott is a boycott. You know, this happened with Goya beans. The Goya beans guy you know, endorsed Trump or something like that. So they tried to cancel him. Well, then people ran out and bought Goya beans. So <laughs> it, you could use the very thing where they sit, where they isolate you and try to humiliate you. If, you. if you think it's a decent person and you want to come back, there, there are options of doing that. It happened with Chick-fil-A can happen with other things. So there's ways to counter this too, but it requires courage, real real courage. Mm.
0: Thanks, Richard. Well, we'll go ahead and open this up to questions. Um, again, I just want to remind everybody, if you're on Zoom, you can put your questions in the Q&A. If you are watching live on Facebook or YouTube, just type them into the comment stream and we'll get to as many of those as we can. The first question is from Victor Snyder off of YouTube. And Victor asks, and I think this is really available to anybody, how can I trust the science when officials willfully lie about the facts and even worse, hide public records?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I I would say uh, with the internet, uh, we do have the basic science available to most of us. And uh, so we can go to the, the journal websites and they're, they're almost all publicly available, including abstracts. And there are sites that uh, uh, allow, uh, I think one of them is called ResearchGate, that if you are interested in getting the original paper, even if it's gated, you can email one of the authors and they more often than not will be happy to send you a copy of the paper. So you do have the tools, tools available to you to, to drill down into the science as much as you're, you're, you're willing to do so.
0: Yeah, I think I find, um, I'm surprised at how much information is actually there, but it's a, it is a lot of work. If you're yeah. not willing to put in the work, then you, you just don't get, in, get the information. So I can sympathize with that. Another question, this is from Chris Quimby from Facebook. And Chris asks, is COVID not the flu? What is different about COVID compared to SARS, swine, H1N1? Was the political response elevated and more authoritative this time to hurt the conservative administration fighting government dependency? Richard, what do you think?
2: Uh, My inclination is to say yes. I know there is a difference between COVID and the flu Uh, you know, from an epidemiological standpoint, I'm not a scientist, but I've read enough to know that that's true. On the other hand, the actual lethality, the death rate is not substantially different. It's higher, but it's not substantially higher. So uh, putting that and two and two and three, three other things together, I do suspect that this was done precisely because it was an opportunity to embarrass, not just the US regime, but the UK regime too. Remember, this started in the UK. The, the scare, the scaremongering over it. So um, I don't want to say more than that because I'm sure there's more questions. But I do some. I do think some of this was politically motivated, and um, so that's a shame. I mean, that all the more that says, wow, public, pub, the public health field has been politicized. Surprise. <laughs>
0: Well, that leads me actually somebody just asked on zoom, and um, I'm going to ask each of you to maybe answer this one. What are your top three sources for info and analysis about one, COVID-19, and two, the pandemic policy. So, David, why don't I start with you, and then we'll go to Stephen and Richard. And if you don't have three, you know, one or two it's fine.
3: Um, I tend to trust the Wall Street Journal. I dropped my subscription to the Washington Post. Um, I lived in Washington, D.C. That was my local paper because it be, it was just so, it had abandoned all standards of objectivity uh, and was morally anti-Trump. The Wall Street Journal is, you know, the the news sections anyway, as opposed to the, are, are, are you know, typically liberal, but they're, as opposed to the uh, uh, opinion pages. But, they're, they have higher standards. So um, there's that. Um, I read a lot from um, some other sources, the American Enterprise Institute, um, the um, Manhattan Institute, the City Journal. They have, um, they tend to, have to do good journalism. It's opinionated. So, um, you know, I have to put that in context. Um, other than that, I just, I follow links on online and I talk to people. Um, I asked my doctors what they think, you know, they're, they're in the field. Um, um, so I don't have a, I don't have a magic bullet here. And be, this is, I've been, although I've been following this very carefully, it's not my field. I'm not, you know, in medicine and I'm not in economics. So, um, I'm, I'm just gathering kernels as I can.
0: Well, and I see, Stephen. One of your um, one of your sources is worldometers.info/coronavirus. Is that correct? Right.
1: Yeah. Aside from the you know, the political and economic stuff, which I, I read all over the map, and I don't have any sorted recommendations there. My my learning curve mostly went up. I started starting from this site, which aggregates the data from all over the world. And then in my uh, semi-amateurish way, trying to develop my own statistical models, uh, but then following the links uh, uh, here to other sources, uh, trying to stay as much as possible to the science papers and the, the quality science journalist summaries of the science papers.
0: Richard, do you have anything
2: you I have- do three, The three best sources I think are, David mentioned one of them, but let me give you the link to it, A-I-E-R. Dot org. That is the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, it's not just that they have staffers who research this, the links to other reports are very good. So I learned substantially what I learned about it by following their links. They're very good about doing not only the economics of it, but the science of it. The other one is uh, David mentioned, uh, I think, that there's an aggregator called Real Clear Markets, Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Policy. But they also have something called Real Real Clear Science. And again, it's not all one-sided, but they're very good at aggregating and condensing just science-related stuff. That's very good. If you're a data junkie like I am, Our World in Data, pretty sure that's the name of the site. I don't have it in front of me. Ourworldindata.com, I think. Uh, And then if you just search for COVID or anything, actually, any economic statistic, financial, health-wise, literacy has everything in one place it's amazing our world in data
0: great thank you so much that's really
2: I, just one quick clarification if i could uh i'm
3: responding to a comment from far close um richard i mentioned aei the american enterprise institute oh, think, and yeah. you were referring to uh the american institute for economic research okay so both great and um okay
2: the this, the one I mentioned is David was the source of the Great Barrington Declaration. Right. Yes. So the Great Barrington Declaration comes out of AIR, which is based in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Yeah. I see what you're saying. There's two different groups. Yeah.
0: Richard, can you since you brought that up, can you just briefly uh, tell our viewers about the Great Barrington?
2: Yes, because the because the American Institute almost from the beginning, and I and uh, full disclosure, I was part of this last spring we initially uh, almost immediately came out with articles and essays and analysis saying, this is wrong. And, and, and some of us up there were shocked at actually at how few people in the Liberty Movement seemed to be bothered by what was being done last spring. Now, some of it was because they thought there would just be a two-week a two week, flatten the curve, remember that? But um, so the Great Barrington Declaration came out of the fact that scientists and epidemiologists were noticing that the American Institute was doing really unique pro-liberty and pro-science stuff. And they gathered them together, I think it was last fall, three or four prominent epidemiologists, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, I forget, and came out with a declaration, a really succinct, nice statement of what the science was and what the economics and political economy should be, and started gathering signatures. So. It's been, if you hear the Great Barrington Declaration, it came out of that group, which is very good. So it's a very good declaration, just look it up. It's had some influence and some media chatter about it. So um, that's where it came from.
0: Great, thanks. And I'm going to um, ask one more question, which when I first saw it, I kind of, laughed but then I really thought about it and I think this is probably a really important question and this comes from Andrew Woodhouse on zoom and he asks how much longer until you guys shrug <laughs>
2: until we what
0: shrug
1: ah, no no plans um I'm re- reminded actually from a line from Adam Smith there's a, a great deal of ruin in a nation <laughs> and uh, while well, i think we are declining in many cultural sectors there's also astounding growth and astounding health in other cultural sectors and i uh, even take in the case of uh, covid as as bad as that was uh, i'm heartened by much of the response to it i think we are going up the learning curve and 150 years ago when there was a, a you know comparable plagues sweeping through large numbers of the population saying we need to go out and kill the jews we're not saying that anymore right we we're we're getting away from religion and superstition to a significant extent and however uh, much we're culturally still in the infancy about following the science at least we now know that's the mantra and millions of people are trying to do so so i'm still optimistic
2: Right. Apropos the question itself, I, I describe myself as, I don't shrug, but, but I do a lot of head shaking <laughs> when I see what's going on in the world. So that's not quite shrugging yet, but, but let, let me throw in something on courage. Uh, do you remember Ayn Rand when she wrote The Virtue of Selfishness? Uh, if I recall the, the preface to that, she said, somebody asked me, why are you using that word? That's a stigma. Uh, don't use that word. You're not going to get your views across. And she said, I'm using it precisely for the reason you fear it. Remember, something like that. And I I think the same thing with capitalism, the unknown ideal. I've heard many libertarians say, oh, we shouldn't be using the word capitalism. You know, it's supercharged with, you know, the Marxist connotations and stuff. So um, since we're we're at TAS here, I, I think it's worth remembering Ayn Rand's use of those terms courageously and not letting anyone cancel her terms. There's not only book burning, there's word burning going on out there. Mm. People wanna burn words and eliminate them. And she she was willing to stand up for both selfishness and capitalism. So we can do the same. You're here.
0: Um, So much Stephen, David, Richard, and thank all of you for joining us today. Again, I'm Vicki Odino. And if you enjoyed this video or any of our other material, please consider making a tax deductible donation At AtlasSociety.org, and also please be sure to turn it tune in next week when Jose Cordero, the author of The Death of Death, will be our guest for the next episode of The Atlas Society asks. Have a great rest of the day.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks,
0: Vicki. Thanks, Vicki. All right. Well done.